What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices, Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM, the Pacifica Network, and online at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Thanks for tuning in. Um, my guest today is Leah Harris. Leah is a psychiatric abuse survivor, and both of her parents also experienced psychiatric abuse. Uh, she's an organizer with the Campaign for Real Change in Mental Health Policy, and she's just completed an investigative report on the Murphy Bill. The Murphy Bill is legislation before Congress, which proposes some very, very controversial changes in mental health policy. So we're going to be speaking about that today on the show. So welcome to Madness Radio, Leah Harris. Thank you so much for having me, Will. It's great to have you. And I, you know, there's so much that we could talk about. Your own story and your work is um, is really um, interesting and important. And also you're, you're a poet. And so we actually have done a couple of interviews with you in the past on Madness Radio. And I just want to encourage people to check those on the um, website, on the archives on the website, which is madnessradio.net. And Leah, let's see. So you are now organizing and campaigning to stop the Murphy Bill. And the Murphy Bill is the Helping Families in Mental Health Crisis Act, H.R. 2646, um, sponsored by um, Representative Tim Murphy from Pennsylvania. Tell us about the bill. Why is it generating so much opposition from both the mental health consumer movement and also the disability rights movement? Well, Will, you know, I think if you just look at the title of the bill, Helping Families in Mental Health Crisis Act, uh, we're all about helping families, helping people who themselves are experiencing distress. Uh, But it's very clear that Representative Murphy is Uh, very interested in the family perspective. He is not interested in hearing themselves from people who've had these experiences, from people who've been through the system. Uh, In fact, he's doing everything he can to make sure our voices are permanently shut out of any decisions regarding uh, policy, regarding federal grants, how our taxpayer money is spent in terms of mental health. Uh, He really has demonized us as the problem uh, instead of looking to us as allies and partners in in this discussion about the future of mental health policy in America. So in creating this um, proposed bill, there's been no consultation or collaboration with leading psychiatric patient consumer advocacy organizations. It's all just coming from a totally different perspective. Absolutely not. And and when you hear him talk, he says, I've talked to thousands of families. Um, and, you know, a lot of us are also family members. I myself am a family member, but he's not interested in hearing in our first person from our first person perspective on what it's like uh, to actually use these services and, and be in these systems. Well, let's talk about what what the what the bill proposes and where did it come from? What is it sort of the history of this and what is it that it's actually trying to uh trying to put into effect. So yeah, to really understand this bill, you have to understand the context, which really comes out of the horrific, horrific shooting that happened at uh, Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut, uh, December 14th, 2012. Uh, soon after this shooting, uh, Representative Murphy pretty much appointed himself the crusader to A, end mass shootings, and B, somehow fix the mental health system. 
Uh, so he's really demonizing and scapegoating um, people with mental health issues for mass shootings and for violence in this country. So understanding that this is really the thrust of the bill. And the other, the other sort of force behind this are family members of adults who have mental health diagnoses. And while I certainly sympathize with the fact that there's terrible services available, there's often very little in the community to support people and families, this is very much a forced treatment and control agenda. So what you see in the bill is um, basically an increase really supporting what is called assisted outpatient treatment. Um, this is a program that's been championed uh, for a long time by the Treatment Advocacy Center, which is an extremely right-wing uh, organization that is connected with people like uh, E. Fuller Tory, who has been really trying to push uh, forced treatment approaches for decades. Um, so it's really kind of that's the force and the influence that's behind it. So it's the mass shootings. It's the families who want to increase forced treatment. So uh, in the bill there would be a 2% increase in block grant funding for states that really implement these assistant, so-called assisted outpatient treatment programs. And to be clear what these are, uh, this is actually using all of the mechanisms of a court and a judge to bring someone you know, before the court and say, you must comply with your treatment orders on an outpatient basis and if you don't, you'll be involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital. Um, so this is really what is better understood as involuntary outpatient commitment. It's forcing care. It also would lower the standard um, for getting you know, put before a judge and being put under AOT orders, which right now it's a danger to self or others. And in some states, it's uh, the quote unquote gravely disabled standard where a person is unable to care for themselves or being perceived as such. Um, it would also now increase or lower that standard to actually include um, someone who has a history of not complying with treatment. Um, and so that's very concerning because there's all kinds of reasons why people might have a history of not complying with treatment. Um, so we see that this is a really sort of dangerous approach. And to be clear, these laws are on the, on the books in 46 states, and they're very rarely used um, because there's just there isn't there aren't the resources to even forcibly commit people to, even if you supported such a thing. Um, you know, it's really clear that the system is broken and that and that AOT would just be forcing people into a broken system without addressing the actual problems that exist. And so this was this was proposed. A version of this was proposed right after the Sandy Hook killings in 2013. And now this is kind of a new a new version of the same thing. And would you say that it's kind of really capitalizing on the fear that people? Yes, have? I mean that's absolutely the rhetoric. So after every single, almost every single mass shooting, um, notably Representative Murphy did not comment on the massacre uh, of of parishioners in South Carolina in a black church. But after almost every single mass shooting, he will go on CNN, he'll go on the Sunday talk shows and say, look, this happened because my bill hasn't been passed and we're not getting people, you know, un serious uh, mental illness, quote unquote, when untreated um, is leading to these kinds of crimes. And, and it's the fault of our government and it's the fault of Congress. And if you passed my bill, this wouldn't happen anymore. So he's mm -hmm. literally capitalizing on people's fears around mass shootings. Okay, so so 
it's already the whole thing. All politics is always complicated. So let's see if we can kind of pull this apart because the other direction that politics goes in after the mass shootings is to talk about gun control. And um, is it fair to say that in some ways um, Murphy's um, impetus for doing this and pushing a mental health agenda instead of a gun control agenda is because of his ties to the National Rifle Association? Is that part of what's going on here? Absolutely. Uh, Congressman Murphy has received an A rating from the National Rifle Association for his voting record on gun control. Uh, And he's really taking his cues very much from people like, you know, the president of the NRA, Wayne LaPierre, who right after Sandy Hook, you know, went uh, on, you know, had a press conference and said, you know, it's these deranged monsters who are running around killing people. So this is very much a sort of right wing uh, Republican stance that's been held for a long time. Like, you know, guns don't kill people. People kill people. And, oh, quote unquote, seriously mentally ill people are the ones that we need to be focused on. Um, So that it really is, you know, even it's even been referred to at this point as the GOP playbook in terms of, you know, let's pivot directly from gun control to mental health. And part of it also, I think, is that a lot of the shootings are motivated by right wing political ideology. And so you get an instant switch from talking about the politics of the shooters and their right wing perspective, their racist perspective in some instances, to talking about their mental health issues as if their politics and motivations don't have anything to do with it. Yeah, it's it's very clear when, you know, shooters are, you know, right wing, generally white extremists, you know, they're they're referred to as mentally ill or even, you know, the Planned Parenthood shooter was called um, a gentle loner. I'm not even kidding. Um, so it really deflects from what's mm. going on here, um, which is, you know, some people are, and I agree rightly, you know, calling it domestic terrorism. That's part of what's motivating this is the, the politics of where Murphy is getting his funding as a as a politician. Yes, absolutely. And and the NRA piece is, is just one part of this. Um, the NRA was actually lobbying on the 2013 version of the bill, the first version that was introduced and didn't go anywhere um, and now they're really kind of throwing their weight all behind a, a different bill that focuses on um, really targeting people with mental health issues for a gun, you know, background check registry. Um, so they're not really, you know, publicly behind the, the Murphy bill, uh, but they're still very much in the mix in terms of trying to to scapegoat this one group of people, um, because if they... <laughs> If they open the door to everyone who's at risk of committing violence with a firearm, you know, their membership would not be very happy. Right. So that's so and they've supported this bill in the past and they support him. So that's part of what's going on. And um, so we should we should talk a little bit about this whole question of, of people who don't want to get treatment, who are not getting treatment or who are not cooperating, who are who are. Um, seen as needing to be forcibly involved in the system, to be court-ordered, to be threatened with uh, confinement if they don't cooperate, and then taken and, and hospitalized if they don't show up and they don't be part of their treatment. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. We've, we've gone over this quite a bit on Madness Radio, but there are many, many reasons why that doesn't work. I mean, first of all, we're talking about treatment, but actually what we're talking about is medication. And so there's that aspect of it. And the second thing is that we know that when someone is in emotional distress, when someone is suffering for whatever it is, 
building a relationship with that person is one of the most important things that you can do to start reweaving their connection and allow them to have some place to go. And um, the problem with forcing someone into treatment is that that breaks that trust and it breaks that relationship. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you you just touched on this so beautifully. Um, and, and there have been actually two randomized controlled trials that have studied AOT. And actually a third in England, two in the U.S., one in, in New York, one in North Carolina, and one in the U.K. And what they have found is that they cannot tie the force at all to any sort of improved outcomes, which are sort of staying out of the hospital and staying out of prison. Um, really what it is is the fact that people received very intensive support, um, like things like supportive housing. Um, you know, their actual environment was addressed. The things that were driving the crisis were addressed. So none of the actual reputable randomized control trials that have looked at AOT, AOT have shown that, that the force has made a difference. Um, and I just want to mention one thing. Um, one of those studies was done in New York, what I mentioned, the randomized control trial of, of the forced outpatient treatment. Um, and they actually found that 85% of the people who were subjected to this had no history of violence. So really characterizing this as a violence prevention intervention is completely ridiculous. Um, the other thing that we see is that, you know, it's it's really perpetuating institutional racism in the public mental health system. Um, if you really look at who is getting AOT, it's overwhelmingly people of color and people living in poverty. In New York, you have African-Americans receiving court orders five times more often than, than white people. Um, same bias in North Carolina, where two-thirds of people who were court-ordered were African-American when they only represent 22% of the state population. And that most of what they're getting are some, some form of forced medication. Um, what they found in New York is that 88% of these AOT orders had some kind of a forced medication component to them. So, you know, it's very clear what is going on here. Um, and it's it's not about preventing violence or preventing mass shootings. It's about really, you know, controlling people of color and marginalized people. And so the idea is that if if actually this was to be implemented, it's it's not actually going to primarily affect people who have any kind of history of violence, and it's going to disproportionately affect people of color. And so it's going to re recreate a lot of the racism that we see institutionally and structurally with the mental health I'm system. I'm completely against the mass incarceration of, of people of color and all people with mental health issues. Um, I'm, you know, that is unacceptable. Um, and the Murphy bill is kind of being used as a pretext, like, oh, look, it's horrible. People are being warehoused in jails. Jails are the new mental hospitals. Um, but this is not the answer. And another piece to the bill also would involve loosening the restrictions on Medicaid coverage for institutions, which again is being is seen as an alternative to incarceration. Oh, let's not put them in jail. Let's make it easier for people to be institutionalized. So what, so what does that mean? So loosening the Medicare, so that means more money would be available for institutionalizing people, not for community-based services. Yes, exactly. And this gets really wonky. I won't go into all of the details, but there, you know, when Medicaid was enacted, they put a restriction on financing for adult psychiatric hospitalization and fac large facilities, larger than 16 beds. And this bill would partially lift that so that states could get, you know, billions of dollars in grants towards institutional care. And any sort of reinvestment 
would not necessarily have to be into community services. So they'd be getting Medicaid funding for institutions, but any savings to the state, they could use for whatever they want. They don't have to use it for, for community mental health services. So we start to see how this is really part of a, it's a pattern. There's a, there's a consistent thread that runs through this bill, which is the the fear and demonization of people with, with mental illness diagnosis. And so we're, you're really talking about you know, a bill that's going backwards because the whole reason that these limitations have been put on on federal funding is because we know from the standpoint of caring for people, from the standpoint of their rights, from the standpoint of disability law and disability um, rights protection, from the standpoints of how people get better, getting them into the community is the direction we need to be going, not back in the direction of the asylums and the state hospitals and the large-scale warehousing of the past. And so this bill actually starts heading in that in that regressive direction. Yeah, and I, I should also say that, you know, people have a lot of mixed feelings about Medicaid and all of this, but Representative Murphy has consistently voted against Medicaid expansion, which creates barriers for people who have, you know, low-income folks who have mental health struggles or addiction struggles who are actually mm-hmm. voluntarily trying to get help. So he's opposing one financing mechanism that would actually allow people be, you know, greater access to services. And, and I'm not saying that all of the services that are funded by Medicaid are phenomenal, um, but this is, you know, it just shows the hypocrisy in terms of his direction. And you're right. It's an absolutely uh, regressive direction. It's the worst possible direction we could be going in. So the bill claims to be, it claims to be saying, look, there's this need out there. People are in mental health crisis. Let's help them. But actually, the, the, the very sponsor of the bill is actually also responsible for preventing the proper funding of community services that people actually do need. Yeah, I mean, I think that unfortunately, people are looking for a scapegoat for mass shootings, um, because there's no political will to address the root causes of what is going on here with these mass shootings. So, you know, he has found the perfect opportunity um, to exploit his agenda, which is a pro-force agenda, and it's a very pro-pharmaceutical agenda. Um, So it's just like the perfect conditions. Have the pharmaceutical companies weighed in on this? Is this the kind of thing that they support and lobby for? So, yeah, there have been many pharmaceutical companies who have supported the bill, both in the previous version and in the, in this version. And I should say that pharma supports Republicans. It supports Democrats. You know, no one's hands are completely mm-hmm. clean. And this is a big, much larger conversation about money and politics. Um, but what we, my co-author Christian Exu and I are focused on in our piece uh, is Atsuka Pharmaceuticals, which is the maker of Abilify. And their role, you know, their place behind this bill. Um, it's, it's a perfect, it's a perfect storm to move this agenda forward. So there's so many pieces. It, it, it becomes almost science fiction at a point. I wish that it was science fiction. Um, but you know, as you know, um, Atsuka Pharmaceuticals is the maker of Abilify. Uh, which, by the way, has not been shown to actually help people diagnosed with schizophrenia. I know you've covered a lot of this on your show um, and, and has actually been shown, you know, in some cases to in, increase violence. Um, people taking Abilify in some studies were 4.2 times more likely to be violent. And again, this is not saying that people with mental health issues are violent, but it's simply saying that both 
you know, regular, you know, drugs, street drugs, as well as uh, pharmaceuticals can, you know, cause people to to become violent. Um, Atsuka has just applied for approval for this new version of Abilify that includes a microchip to monitor adherence. Uh, and what this chip does is it sends radio signals out as the line of the lining of the stomach as the pill is digested so that the doctors and courts can monitor whether or not a patient is actually taking the pills. Okay. So uh, Atsuka has been lobbying very heavily on the bill. And, it, and it's very important to note that they're, they're, they stand to lose a lot of money um, by Abilify, regular Abilify, not microchip Abilify, but regular Abilify going off patent. Um, so this is really important to understand that this is a huge, huge part of Atsuka Pharmaceuticals' budget, um, and that they stand a lot to lose if you know Abilify goes generic. So a um, so a pharmaceutical company they 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 create a drug, they put it on the market, they charge really high prices for it, they make lots of profit, but then there's an expiration date on the patent. And when that expires, boom, the generic drugs can come in and they don't make as much money. So you're saying that um, Atsuka has this interest in having a vehicle to market its new microchip-enabled Abilify. And we, and we should say, that, you know, I have done some research on this. is not delusional when she's saying <laughs> there's going to be a, an antipsychotic drug that has a... Um, a microchip, and it actually is, it sounds very much like a strange science fiction reality, but it's actually a, a true thing. Yes, and remember that AOT, this quote-unquote AOT, so-called assisted outpatient treatment, which is forcing someone to receive treatment in the community, um, that it relies very heavily on medication, and that if you look at this population are, are the people who are quote-unquote non-compliant, they would be the perfect market for a pill that monitors compliance. So see how perfect all of this is? And they've been lobbying, Atsuka's been lobbying heavily on this bill. So starting in 2014, they quintupled their lobbying budget. So in 2013, it was $250,000 a year, which is like a drop in the bucket for them, to more than a million dollars a year in 2014 and 2015. And our source on this is open secret. Um, and then they've spent at least 320000 hiring separate lobbying firms on the previous version of, of the Murphy bill. Uh, and then this year, they've already spent 190000 The bill's only been out for um, six months since it's been introduced. So they've spent $190,000 on the new version of the bill. Um, and they've also donated very heavily to groups that have not in really any way criticized the Murphy bill and have been supportive. Um, so you won't be surprised that they've supported not just NAMI, but you know, the national NAMI, but the NAMI chapters, um, National Alliance on Mental Illness, who's supposed to be the biggest advocacy group for people with mental health conditions. So Atsuka Pharmaceuticals stands to basically earn a lot of money if this bill passes. Why? That's why they're. That's why they're lobbying for it. I mean, why else are they a business? They're only going to invest money in lobbying if it's if it's a good business decision to invest money in lobbying. Absolutely. You know that there's uh, almost half of their annual revenue comes from Abilify, which is used primarily to mm. treat people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia. It's also for um, people with autism. It's been um, approved for use in autism. Um, so this would really cause them to lose its very, very lucrative monopoly and half its revenue. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Which is that actually the link to autism is also really sinister because a number of the autism advocates are pointing out that there's no disease process that's been identified for autism and the, the use of antipsychotic medication like Abilify in for autism is actually relatively new and it's growing and it's clearly and explicitly about controlling behavior. There's nothing that's even remotely related to the idea of recovery or related to the idea of disease treatment or anything like this. It's it's really an institutional control tool. So the fact that Abilify is used both for autism and in this context of out, assisted outpatient treatment and proposals for that um, really points again to this um, this use of the whole mental health paradigm in more of a control and um, uh, law and order and security framework. It's just so transparent if you look at the money, you know. I mean, it, what is really happening here? I and mean, this whole bill is couched in, oh, we're so concerned about these people who are not getting care and they're rotting away in, in jails. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm horrified that people are rotting away in jails. And I wish that the real purpose of this bill was to actually help people get out of prison and to live a quality life in the community and, and, you know, get the access to what they need to stay out of prison. But yeah, that, that's not what's going on here. Yeah, that's really, it's, it's very hard if the, if the main sponsor of the bill is actually opposed to funding community mental health services, if he's not actually in favor of providing Medicaid funds to get better voluntary services, clearly that's not his agenda. It's clearly not, you know, and groups that you think, you know, should be supporting a really progressive direction in mental health, like Mental Health America, you know, that was founded by Clifford Beers, who himself was an ex-patient who experienced terrible mm-hmm. abuse. Um, they have quickly reversed their position uh, on the Murphy bill. And and Atsuka, again, is in the mix. Um, they've, they've donated over $420,000 to Mental Health America in 2014. That's that's 12.5% of their budget. So Mental Health America is now supporting the Murphy Bill. They're sort of not a, criticizing it in any way. They have a conflict of interest because they're getting lobbying money from one of the pharmaceutical companies that stands to benefit from the bill. Exactly. And before they got all this money, they were much stronger coming out against the bill and what mm-hmm, was wrong mm-hmm. with it. So, so we're kind of, you know, in, in kind of examining this this bill, and I think this is one of the reasons that I, w- I was so interested in inviting you on the show, is that we're sort of seeing the the complex reality of how um, sort of um, deeply concerning and deeply corrupted mental health policymaking is in the United States, and how predatory it is on people's fears and misinformation, and obviously the concerns that so many of us have to provide better services, the concerns that so many of us have that the criminal justice system has so many people with diagnosis in it, the concerns that so many of us have to respond in a meaningful way to these mass shootings just gets preyed upon by a very, very different political and economic and set of business interests. Absolutely. And I I haven't even gotten to the hospital industry's role in this bill. Uh, This just goes on and on. The amount of pork in here is just obscene. Um, Very lots of people have heard of Big Pharma, um, but not as many people have heard of the National Association of Psychiatric Hospital Systems, um, which is listed on his website as a supporter. Um, They would love for his bill to be implemented. It would be a huge boon to business, to their hospitals, both with the AOT for people who don't comply and then are forced to be hospitalized, as well as Mm -hmm. the increased inpatient payments. Um, So if you look at it, the same pattern, 
So like from 2003 to 2012, NAFS, which is the acronym National Association of Psychiatric Hospital Systems, uh, donated just about a thousand dollars a year to Murphy. Not really that much. But then in January 2013, they started really plying him with cash um, and, and gave unprecedented donations to him. Um, and you, if you look at their policy agenda for 2015, it includes the Murphy bill. Um, their connection is really substantial. Their board of trustees is loaded with the top brass from the major psychiatric and mental health hospitals and the, all the for-profit uh, treatment chains. Um, individual staff of NAFs and lobbyists are also Murphy donors. So you just really see the cozy relationship, A, with pharma and B, with these for-profit um, hospital chains that are abusive, um, that they are very cozy with Murphy. And and one thing, another thing I should add about the bill is while he is in, uh, supporting increased institutionalization, he actually wants to limit the ability of the protection and advocacy for individuals with mental illness, the PAMI program. That's not my name. That's just what it's called. Uh, the, he wants to limit the ability of the PAMI program um, to really support people to stay out of the hospital by connecting them with community services and housing and all the things that are so hard to get. PAMI advocates in every single state help to connect people with those kinds of supports that will help them to get out of the revolving door system. Um, so at first, in the earlier version of the bill, he wanted to prohibit them from pursuing any kind of uh, abuse and neglect cases on a systemic level. They would have only been allowed to do individual cases of abuse and neglect, which would not, you know, would not really fix a problem like what's happening in Florida, where people in the state mental health, mental hospitals there are, are dying. 14 people died because of abuse and neglect in, in these hospitals. They would only be able to deal with those cases one, well, they died, but they would have only been able to, when they were alive, address one case at a time. And we are so thankful that because people fought hard, you know, the cross-disability movement fought very hard and said, this is unacceptable that you're restricting the PAMI program in this way and not letting them do systemic advocacy, that was taken out of this version. But the, there's still mm -hmm. plenty mm -hmm. to be concerned of, about in terms of the PAMI restrictions. And, this and so, who is, so who, is, who is opposing the bill? Who, we know that there are a number of leading consumer survivor organizations that are against it, but what kind of, of diverse coalition is saying no to the Murphy bill at this point? So, yeah, I, I would really encourage people to um, go to the Protect PAMI website, um, and we can put a link along with the show um, to the Protect PAMI website, but it really gives a sense of the, the variety of people, as well as the Campaign for Real Change in Mental Health Policy website, um, which really shows the variety of opposition. So you have... Uh, obviously, the cross-disability agencies, the, cro the National Council on Independent Living, uh, you have the American Civil Liberties Union has come out against this bill. Um, you have actually the Service, uh, Employee, uh, Service Employees International Union also has spoken out against the bill um, because of how these for-profit hospital chains you know, really cut corners and don't hire enough people to actually... Um, help people or support people and that it really causes a lot of problems. Um, obviously, the National Disability Rights Network is against this. 
um, the National Coalition for Mental Health Recovery, which is run by people who have actual lived experience with the mental health system. Domestic violence groups are really opposed to this um, to this bill because of privacy issues where your information could be released to very loosely defined caregivers. Your private health information could be released. So there's a lot of uh, concerns. Um, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network is against this bill. It's largely people who have had these experiences themselves or civil rights organizations, people who are not tainted by pharmaceutical or hospital industry money. So let's let's turn for a moment because one of the one of the things that drives this legislation and and other kinds of legislation is is the interest and in the um, upset nationwide that happens whenever there's a a mass shooting, people are, are killed, and then people want to do something. And so, you know, we talk a lot as society about gun control and what should we do about guns, because obviously, you know, these killings wouldn't ki- wouldn't happen if people didn't have access to guns, but at the same time, guns are a very ingrained part of U.S. culture. They're part of people's sense of civil liberty and freedom. There's a whole history of, of guns in the country. And so, um, and then you throw into that, mix, there's an incredible lobbying force with the gun manufacturers, and this is incredible political, ideological um, perspective, which is very, very strong against um, gun control. So that's part of what we're dealing with here, is that this legislation takes a discussion that could be about gun control and then puts it on mental health. And so one of the things that we have heard a lot about is the idea of like, well, you know, we need these background checks on um, gun owners because we know that, you know, mental illness is such an important uh, reason why people are the, are doing these terrible things. And all these shooters obviously are mentally ill, so if they just didn't have guns. And there's a limit also to that perspective, that kind of thinking. Let, let's talk about that a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I think the the research is really, really clear that people who have a mental health diagnosis and and representative murphy is specifically going after people who are diagnosed with what is called serious mental illness so we're talking about schizophrenia bipolar um, major depression um, that this is not the population of people that are committing gun crime like it's outrageous people with these diagnoses first of all commit maybe three percent to five percent of crime total that's including gun crime. Um, so really, these background checks are just a joke because they're focusing on a very small group of people, A, who've been diagnosed so that they you know, already have a history, and that these are not folks who are committing the mass shootings overall or gun crimes overall. And I love what Jonathan Metzl, the um, professor from Vanderbilt University, who's a psychiatrist, has said, mm-hmm. we have much more to fear from the sane. And I think he's absolutely right. So this is very calculated to like, let's just target this tiny group of people that we are saying are responsible for all this violence so that we don't have to really look at how about alcohol? You know, there are there are new laws, I believe, in in Texas and Georgia and other places that let you bring guns into bars, even though we've seen that the vast majority of, of shootings, domestic violence and other defined mass shootings and has some component with alcohol. But no, we, there's no way we could look at that. So let's just target this really small group of people who's actually not driving the problem while we leave you know, the rest of the population to pack as they will. 
Uh, it's absolutely absurd if you look at it. Yeah, the actually the the rate of um, violence among the general background population is actually higher than the rate of violence among people who have a mental illness diagnosis. So it's actually the reverse. It's not that people have a higher higher rate of violence because they're diagnosed with mental illness. It's actually it's actually less, and people have a um, more likelihood to be victims of violence. So again, it's that scapegoating uh, dynamic. And um, you pointed out the connection to alcohol, that there is a connection with substance abuse. And so some people are saying, well, if we are going to do background checks on gun ownership, which seems to make a lot of sense, we shouldn't be focusing on whether or not someone has a mental illness diagnosis. We might want to look at whether they have an arrest record that's related to substance use, for example, or some kind of problem, um, prior conviction, or some kind of history that might suggest that they have some history of violence. And if they have a history of violence, okay, then they might not qualify for for purchasing a firearm. Now, there's a whole huge set of questions about gun control we're not necessarily talking about, but this is a pretty logical um, line of reasoning to follow that actually if you want to look at who is more likely to be involved with acts of violence, it's the wrong direction to be looking at people with a schizophrenia diagnosis or a depression diagnosis or a bipolar diagnosis and somehow think you can filter out um, people on that basis and create any kind of impact on the amount of violence in society. It's just absurd on so many levels. And, you know, if we're really concerned, we should really understand the fact that suicide and guns are strongly correlated, you know, and that the fewer guns, first of all, mm-hmm. having fewer guns means less gun violence in in terms of both homicide and suicide. Uh, and, and I think it's just outrageous that we are, you know, focusing on this very small segment of the population. Um, you know, there's been research, you know, or, you know, just analyzing FBI data showing that states with the lowest mm-hmm. rates of quote unquote mental illness tend to have the highest, higher rates of firearm related homicide, you know? So this is just clearly a ploy, you know, and that, yeah, Gun control is a big, complicated, divisive conversation. But if you look at what happened in Australia, they had some horrible mass shooting problems just like we did. You know, they're pretty comparable in terms of being a, you know, developed nation and, you know, all of this. They got rid of their guns. No more mass shootings. I mean, that there's no political will to make that happen here. I think the suicide, I think the suicide rate went down in Australia as well. Yeah, actually. absolutely. And it's it is so easy to get a hold of a gun here in this country. Um, and so I think, yeah, this is clearly we're not wanting to look at the root causes of problems and across the board, whether it's, you know, let's do some limited legislation focusing on people with a mental health history uh, for background checks and gun restrictions or let's, you know, make sure we target them for forced treatment. You know, any, any direction you go, it's the same scapegoat. Um, what about the, um, the Treatment Advocacy Center? Because you, you mentioned them before as being, a, and they're, they are a, a leading um, advocate of these kinds of policy approaches that force drugs, force treatment, um, the vilification of people. And it's done in the name of care. It's done in the name of the idea like, well, people aren't, aren't capable or aren't able of getting their own support. What do you think is the role of the Treatment Advocacy Center? And can you tell us a little bit about them and how they um, are involved in all this? You know, a lot of folks have said that this bill is um, E. Fuller Tory's revenge. Um, that's what it's that's what it's been called, because as I mentioned, you know, Dr. Tory, who's really one of the founders of the Treatment Advocacy Center, I believe he's still on their board. 
um, you know, really is one of the most extreme, has some of the most extreme views in, in the field of mental health. And the Treatment Advocacy Center and people like E. Fuller Tory um, are very aligned with the right wing. Um, and they've been aligned with institutions such as the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation, where Dr. Tory spun out the vision of this bill long before Newtown, which was, you know, it, this has been a very clear agenda that's been going on for decades. Uh, but I think the enormity of this tragedy created the right conditions to kind of push this agenda forward. So it's it's anti people with lived experience, like we are irrelevant, we shouldn't, we have nothing to say that's useful. Um, uh, so it's really, you know, targeting people who are trying to work to change the system based on their own experience. Uh, and also taking down the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which is another component of this bill. Tory's been advocating for this for forever. Um, the Also the PAMI program, he's been wanting to get rid of them forever. Um, so it just, you know, it's really just clearly, you know, a treatment advocacy center, uh, you know, created bill essentially. And where does the where does the treatment advocacy center sort of get its its support from? Where did they come from, and how did they become such an important part of this? So they've been very careful to not align themselves with the pharmaceutical industry because they, you know, don't want to be seen as a pawn of the pharmaceutical industry. But they actually get a fair amount of money from the Stanley Foundation. Um, and they also get money from family members who are hurting and really looking for answers. And Treatment Advocacy Center says that they're going to have the answers for them and the solutions for their daughter or their son who's an adult and is not, you know, for whatever reason going along with the program or who's been, you know, hasn't been able to access services. Um, so they're really preying on these family members. And my heart goes out to them. You know, like you said in your intro, both of my parents uh, had terrible, terrible experiences in the mental health system. They suffered awfully. Mm. I'm a family member too. You know, these my mother was under forced outpatient treatment in Wisconsin for years, and it it she hated it. It ruined her life. Did not make her quote unquote compliant. She experienced it as oppressive and invasive. Uh, it was awful for her. You know, so this is not the answer. There's no sort of one size fits all. But, you know, Treatment Advocacy Center has been able to prey on these families to pursue this agenda. And again, along with uh, the Stanley Foundation money, which has kind of put them above the pharmaceutical industry fray. You know, this has been an agenda really to reverse all of the progressive gains. Again, I said this is very much aligned with right wing politics, um, uh, the, to reverse the gains, the progressive gains that have been made by people with lived experience who said, we want to change the system. Yeah, one of the things that happened in Alameda County in California is that there was um, a move to get involuntary treatment, assisted out, outpatient treatment um, support on the policy level in Alameda. And um, the, apparently the Treatment Advocacy Center, which is based in on the East Coast, they will send people in and send money in to start getting advocates and try and get people on the talking points to start applying the city council, the board of supervisors to um, start listening to this perspective. And they come at it from a very strong look. Um, this is about helping people who are in need. You're going to hear from these kind of 
um, uh, crazy uh, civil libertarian Scientologist that this is a bad idea, but this is actually a really good idea, and don't listen to them because this is really the best way to help people in need. And then, then they line up their local advocates in a very, very um, concerted effort, a very manipulative kind of way. And this happens throughout the country that they're very much pushing this, um, but it doesn't come from the communities at a grassroots level. It comes from rich donors that are from out of the area that are basically promoting this as an ideological agenda. Yeah. And they just, you know, they have these heart wrenching stories and also these fear inducing stories that really reach policymakers. I wish that we were a tenth of as organized as they are, you know, and, and unfortunately we aren't. We have our stories, too, that are equally powerful about how many of us have been hurt by these systems or we've been helped by the very things that they're trying to get rid of. Um, but, you know, and that's why I would encourage mm-hmm, mm-hmm. everyone who's listening to this show, contact your representatives, you know, tell them your story, tell them what hurt you, tell them what helped you, tell them what you would like to see, you know, this, the direction for the system go in. Um, Cause these folks are very well organized. They are a well-oiled machine. Um, they were packed. They pack every hearing in Congress um, you know, they have the ability and the means to, to get around. And, you know, many of our folks are living in poverty. You know, they can't fly around all over the place and testify. Um, but we can call our congresspersons. We can email our congresspersons. We can tell our stories. Um, so I would really encourage people to do that. Um, because, yeah, this this is it's just to me, it's tremendously sad that, you know, we are at odds in this way. They have no interest in hearing our stories, hearing our perspectives. Um, and if I can just tell one quick story about them, mm-hmm. I was invited to a breakfast uh, on the on the Hill, which was to give some treatment advocacy center award. Um, and Congressman Murphy spoke and then he left and then they had a panel that was um, the head of the American Psychiatric Association, um, someone from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, um, E. Fuller Tory, and a family member whose child had been violent. And my heart goes out to her. I mean, that's a horrible situation. Um, and then the then head of the Treatment Advocacy Center said, look, all voices are represented here. <laughs> like, literally, I'm, that's a direct quote. All voices are represented on this panel. And I'm usually like, I can usually keep it together in a crowd and kind of, you know, know when to speak up. But I just stood up and I was like, this is absolutely incorrect. All voices are not represented here. And in fact, the most important voice in this equation is the person who themselves are going through these experiences. People have used these systems and have something to say. This voice is Mm -hmm. conspicuously absent. And of course, everyone just ignored me and went on with the program. This is the way they operate. They do not want to hear from us. They don't care what we think. And, you know, people like Dr. Sally Sattel, who's aligned with them, will say, oh, you know, we really need benign paternalism in our system. She actually calls it benign paternalism. Um, And this is how they operate. And it truly is anything but benign. Well, let's talk about this for a second, because, I mean, my my sense is that most people out there in our country are going to basically listen to this this point of view. I mean, clearly, if you're someone who's suffering, what you need is good voluntary community services. Clearly, the medications don't work for everybody. Clearly, they're being pushed on people, and we don't need to stereotype and vilify and demonize. There's, there's other ways. And I think people will really listen to where we're coming from, and I think that a lot of our... Um, 
points of view are really capable of striking a chord at the grassroots in the United States um, and beyond. The problem is essentially that we're up against these giant lobbying machines. And as I'm absolutely opposed to the Murphy Bill, at the same time, I know that when we defeat this, because I believe we will, there'll be another one, and there'll be another one, and there'll be another one. So I think that there's a bigger question here that needs to be addressed in, in all of this that we're looking at politically and looking at legislations and looking at policies, is that we're not on a level playing field. It's not the voters and our perspective as citizens that have a voice in government policy. It's money that has the voice. It's the investment that the 1% and the lobbyists and the industry can make to basically buy the Congress people. This is essentially what we've got to overcome because, I mean, when we defeat the Murphy bill, I would not like to be fighting in the next one and the next one, the next one. I would like to say, look, let's look at the Murphy bill. Let's look at the perfect storm of political, economic, business interests, lobbying, corruption at an institutional level. What is it that makes this even thinkable? Let's talk about the kinds of changes that have to happen on a more basic level in the rules of the game so that we actually do have some kind of citizen equality. So it's not about the lobbying. So it's not about congressional re-election campaigns. It's not about follow the money. It's actually about what do the people want? As a democracy, what what actually is the is the point of view that wins the bigger support in the in the discussion, the pluralistic discussion of what is the right way to respond to people? Because I believe that if we actually did have a more of a of a level playing field and we did actually have people's voices counting in government policy, that people would start listening to movements that make a lot of sense and say, look, let's do something that's actually gonna help people rather than going for the, the, the short-term business interests of very, very um, biased and narrow um, industry and lobbying interests and political interests that are basically out to make sure that they enhance their own power and their own money in, in the short term. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I could not agree with you more. I think if we need to look at, if we want to look at the root, root cause of what is going on in this country, all these intersecting issues that that we face as, as a nation, this is what is at the root of it. And and like you, I'm a, a huge devotee of, of Larry Lessig and his, you know, really his admirable campaign to get money out of politics. And and I think really, yeah, the Murphy bill is just one example of how this plays out. Um, there's if you look at any bill in Congress, follow the money, you know, follow the money, see mm-hmm. who is benefiting from this bill. And, and nine times out of 10, it's going to be some corporate interest or some big lobby or another. Um, and, I, you know, I'd love for you to be able to say more about um, Democracy Spring and, and some of these other efforts that are that are taking place here um, to really try to address uh, money in politics. And so there is an anti-corruption movement. I would very strongly hope that anybody who's interested in opposing the the Murphy bill and bills like it, who's anybody who's interested in, in changing mental health policy in a meaningful direction in our country, start to think about how we can make connections with everybody else, not just on the left, not just the Democrats, but also there are also people who are Republicans, who are even in the Tea Party, who are on the right, who are also looking at institutional corruption issues and saying, look, we have to have a functioning democracy before we can do anything in this country. And so there is a big anti-corruption movement. There's a protest, for example, that's planned in in April, democracy uh, spring. There's an ongoing effort that's happening on local communities and on state level and federal level to try and get fundamental, fundamental change. 
around the issue of getting money out of politics and making the promise of our democratic system actually fulfill what it was intended to be so that then we can actually have a chance for meaningful kinds of changes and meaningful kinds of policies that are supported by the majority of people. So I would really encourage people to to check that out and to take a look at things that I've written, take a look at, um, there's a piece that, that Leah, you, you co-wrote an expose about the Murphy Bill. Do you want to say a little bit about that? We don't have much time, but tell us a little bit about that. People can take a look at it. So as I mentioned, my co-author, um, Christian Exu, and I really, you know, we know that money is in politics. And so we looked at it through the lens of this one bill, and we looked at it through the lens of Atsuka Pharmaceuticals and their sort of outrageous um, microchipped medications. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're very clear that this is part of a much, much larger pattern. Um, And and we may not be able to go deeply into that in this piece, but we really want to show what's what's really behind this whole debate. So we're going to be putting out information about Atsuka that, you know, the public really is not aware of. Nobody that I know of has kind of put all the pieces together. We've heard some of us have heard about the microchip pill. Some of us have heard about the Murphy Bill, you know, all of this. But really, we need to understand the full picture to be informed, you know, in this whole in this whole situation. Um, so we're really focusing on just that piece of it. But, you know, I think this is an issue that can unite people who are working on all different kinds of single issues. Um, and I, I really strongly believe that just like Audrey Lord said, you know, we don't there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we don't lead single issue lives. But this is the issue that underlies all of the issues um, of injustice and inequality in this country and, and who is running the show. Um, so, you know, we're, we're very much wanting to kind of point the public in that direction with this piece to, to understand that these people who are claiming to be, you know, working in our best interests um, really are not working in our interests at all. And they're, and they're playing on our fears, our insecurities, um, and, and they're demonizing people with mental health issues all in the name of, of really perpetuating the same old, same old agenda. Leah, we are just about out of time. So um, give us information about how people can contact you, how they can find out more about the Murphy Bill, and what they can do if they want to be involved in the effort to, to stop the Murphy Bill. Great. Yes, thank you. And, and we will make sure to have the links uh, to this accompanying the show, um, prote- the Protect PAMI, P-A-I-M-I website, um, lists all the different groups who are opposed to the bill. Um, realmhchange.org, uh, that's our website, Campaign for Real Change in Mental Health Policy. Uh, the National Coalition for Mental Health Recovery has been working on this, ncmhr.org. Um, there you can find out more. Um, we're updating our real campaign for mental health change website all the time. Um, so you can stay up to date. We have a list of statements. You can contact us through there. Uh, the media is also invited to contact us through there um, to really get the full picture of what's happening uh, with this bill. And and really to, the point is to really get to a point where we promote a policy agenda. We're not just opposing something, but we're promoting a progressive, true policy agenda for mental health. Well, Leah, thank you so much for your important work on stopping the Murphy Bill, and thank you so much for being with us on Madness Radio. Thanks so much. Always great to be on, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Leah Harris. Leah is a psychiatric abuse survivor, and both of her parents also experienced psychiatric abuse. She's an organizer with the Campaign for Real Change in Mental Health Policy and has just completed an investigative report 
on the Murphy Bill, which is H.R. 2646, the Helping Families in Mental Health Crisis Act, sponsored by Tim Murphy, Representative Republican from Pennsylvania. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices. Host is Will Hall and producer is Nina Packabush. Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM and the Pacifica Network, and shows are archived online at madnessradio.net.